What comes to mind when you hear the word Israel? Some would say Israel is God's special nation. Others have nothing but contempt for Israel and all Jews, accusing them of being violent oppressors, manipulative money grabbers. Well, just ahead, we're going to lay out the basic facts about Israel, its origin, history, status today, and future existence, all from a biblical point of view. Welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're looking forward to spending some time with you right now, but got a question. What does God really care about? Think about that. Obviously, if you could make a list of all of the things that God cares about, it would be pretty long, but there's one thing we often forget he cares about, the Jewish people. And we see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. Yeah, that's right, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for his precious people. The articles written by Life and Messiah staff provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeandmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up today to receive your free gift. Our program is divided into four segments. This is the first of those four current events. Charlie, what do the other three look like? Well, the other three are just about as exciting as this is. After looking at the current events, uh, you then have an interview with someone who's fascinatingly connected to the Middle East. Uh, Then we have the question and answer time where people write in their questions about the Bible or current events, and we provide an answer. And then finally, we take them to some spot in Israel, open God's word, and share what God has to say for them today. Okay, and so let's dig into our current events for the week. Israel's next election is now just over a week away. With the end of Sukkot this past Sunday, all the political parties started their final campaign blitz. So what's been happening and what might we expect next week? Yeah, you know, John, we're used to marathon campaigns here for political offices. You know, ads and rallies start a year or more ahead of election. But instead of a marathon, Israel's election's more like a 100-yard dash. And right now, all the parties are racing toward the November 1 finish line. Now, these two weeks are when they spend most of their campaign finances on radio, television, and print ads, and when the candidates pack in as many rallies and public appearances as possible. So here's some of the latest developments. Ayelet Shaked and the Jewish Home Party continue to poll below the 3.25% threshold they need to reach to make it into the Knesset. And that's forced Netanyahu and the Likud party to make a choice. Now, they could either use their resources and influence to help boost her party in the polls, hoping her to make it over that threshold, or work to siphon off her remaining support. And they concluded it was unlikely her party would cross the threshold, so Likud is now actively campaigning to draw away her votes. Now, this is a gamble, because if her party was able to reach the threshold, they would automatically gain four seats, which would help Netanyahu secure a majority in the Knesset but they decided the votes are too important to risk losing. Now, on the other side, Yair Lapid and the Yesh Atid party are apparently taking a similar approach. Rather than helping the parties to the left of him, Lapid appears to be trying to appeal to voters on the left to vote for his party. He's apparently assuming the left-wing parties and the Arab parties will make it into the Knesset anyway, so he wants his party to be the dominant one in any future coalition. 
Uh, the third major candidate, Benny Gantz and the National Unity Party, are taking a slightly different approach. He knows his party won't dominate Netanyahu or Lapid, but he's apparently gambling that neither of those will be able to secure a coalition either. So he's positioning himself as a solid statesman who can appeal to groups on both sides of the political spectrum. Now, his goal is to secure enough seats in the Knesset to be seen as a respectable compromise for prime minister in, instead of the more polarizing front runners. Uh, the one major unknown in the election is still voter turnout. And in this case, it might be the ultra-Orthodox parties that could produce the election surprise. They've not liked being out of power, and as a result, their voters might be more motivated to get out and vote. Should they secure more seats in the Knesset than predicted, that could help put Netanyahu over the top. Now, hopefully, we should have some answers in the next 10 days. Story number two, a concerning one. The level of violence between Israel and the Palestinians has increased dramatically over the past month. What's behind this uptick in violence, and what can be done to defuse the situation? Now, part of the reason for the violence is the pressure being put on the Palestinian Authority by both Hamas and other radical groups, and by Israel. Hamas and the other groups are pushing to take over the West Bank from the Palestinian Authority, which they see as corrupt and too cooperative with Israel. A group called the Joint Chamber of Resistance Factions in Gaza called on the masses of Palestinians in the West Bank to attack Israelis, no matter what the sacrifice. And in Janine and Nablus, Fatah and Islamic Jihad forces have joined together to fight against Israeli forces. A group called the Lion's Den, based in Nablus, has also been carrying out attacks on Israelis. Now, it's less clear what can be done. Most of the recent attacks have been carried out by young Palestinians, and they appear to be fueled by social media posts that are encouraging the youth to take action. Right now, Israel is trying to impose lockdowns and blockades in the areas where those terrorist incidents are originating. They're also trying to locate and target those leading and participating in the attacks. And they're quietly working with the Palestinian Authority to see if they can restore law and order, allowing Israel to pull back its forces. Palestinian Authority President Abbas has called on his security forces to regain control. Now, if these approaches don't work, then it's possible Israel will launch a more large-scale military offensive in those areas. And sadly, that could result in more widespread conflict and death. Charlie, I, I zoom out from this uh, conversation. I ask myself, these Palestinians committing these violent acts, is it uh, their hope that if they just do enough of them, somehow Israel will say, you know, we don't really have a right to the land, we'll just leave? Or, or is it just, eh, as long as they're here, we're going to make their lives as miserable as possible? Which is it? Uh, I think it's actually the former. Uh, and that is, they actually believe that Allah is behind them, that Israel's the interloper, they're the colonialists, and uh, if we cause enough problem, we will eventually get all the land back and force Israel out. Uh, that's a pipe dream, but that is their dream. It's the land of the book from Moody Radio, Charlie Dyer, our host. Just over a week ago, representatives from Fatah, Hamas, and 12 other factions met in Algeria to discuss plans to reconcile the different groups. What was the outcome, and what impact could this meeting have on the current conflict? Yeah, isn't this amazing? This story following just with the one we just had. Uh, well, here's what happened. Algeria invited the groups to Algiers for unity talks. And the report from the talks is the groups agreed to take positive steps toward reconciliation, including an agreement to hold elections within a year. Now, this isn't the first time the groups have met, nor is it the first time they've agreed to hold elections. You know, most recently, in January of 2021, President Abbas scheduled national elections for May of this year. 
but they were then abruptly canceled three weeks before they were to be held. Now, other reconciliation attempts have also been unsuccessful. The one thing that's different this time is that Palestinian Authority President Abbas is now 87 years old and not in the best of health. Hmm. It's very possible the groups are motivated to talk now because they envision a change in leadership in the not-too-distant future. But announcing reconciliation and actually achieving it, well, that's two different matters entirely. Right. If elections were held right now, it's almost certain Hamas would win. And that's why it's hard to imagine Fatah actually going forward with them. Fatah's experience in Gaza following their election loss to Hamas back in 2007, that's still a painful memory that they don't want to have repeated in the West Bank. And that's why Fatah's demanding that Hamas's military wing be decommissioned as part of any agreement. And it's hard to envision Hamas disarming. Right now, the different groups are promoting this agreement, but it's entirely possible the agreement will end up like those that came before, cast aside before the deadline arrives for it to be implemented. Hmm. And with the current unrest in the West Bank being fueled by Hamas, the breakdown of this agreement might come sooner rather than later. Well, many drivers now routinely use GPS to navigate to a destination on unfamiliar roads, for sure. But wouldn't it be nice to have something similar that could direct you to the, uh, for example, taco shells in your local grocery store? Well, a company from Amazing Israel has developed an indoor navigation system that can do just that. Tell us about this helpful smartphone guide from Amazing Israel. Yeah, this new company is called Orient, and that's with two I's, O-R-I-I-E-N-T. It's working with supermarket chains and other retailers to enable shoppers to find their way around inside spaces. It grew out of frustration uh, that the developer felt when he was out actually trying to find a specific item in a grocery store. Uh, He spent two years figuring out what didn't work. GPS and Bluetooth were too cumbersome and too costly. But what he discovered is every spot indoors has its own unique magnetic field. So he developed an app that uses geomagnetics to pinpoint indoor locations accurate to within a three-foot radius. He formed a partnership with Google, and he's developed an iOS and Android app that can help customers navigate to the location for the items on their shopping list. Now imagine, John, working your way through the grocery aisles with your smartphone, plotting the most efficient path to your specific purchases, including those taco shells. and. That's the innovation from Orient coming out of Amazing Israel that might just be heading to the grocery store where you shop. Thank you, Charlie. Coming up, a biblical look at the history of Israel here on The Land and the Book. What comes to mind when you hear the word Israel? Some would say Israel is God's special nation. Others would say Israel was God's nation, but it has no special place in God's program today or in the future. Still others have nothing but contempt for Israel and all Jews, accusing them of being violent oppressors, manipulative money grabbers, and a menace to the human race. In just a minute, we'll begin laying out the basic facts about Israel, its origin, history, status today, and future existence, all from a biblical point of view. This is The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to segment two. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to think with me for just a minute about some creative ideas for sharing Christ with a Jewish friend. So at some point, as you walk down the roads of life with your Jewish friend, the elephant in the room is going to come up, and that would be a historical treatment of Jewish people from a supposedly Christian perspective that was less than Christian. I speak of things like the Crusades. I speak of things like 
the Holocaust. And Eva Rydelnik is here to help us sort out how do we address those things? How do we present them or not present them? Wow. This is a vital area of understanding, and it is the major roadblock in Jewish people, even considering that Jesus might be the Messiah, because of their acute awareness of Christian anti-Semitism, thing that people in the church are often not really aware of, or just kind of in a general kind of bad cloud back there, but that was a long time ago. For Jewish people, it is more real, more deep, more current, and more extensive in knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, when a Jewish person confronts this issue with us, I think the most important thing that we can do is acknowledge the reality of that. That, yes, horrible things were done to the Jewish people in the name of Jesus. And it wasn't just a long time ago. It was recent, and it's ongoing. But those horrible things that were done in the name of Jesus do not reflect the person of Jesus. Exactly right, John. Exactly right. And this is a very difficult um, division to make. But the fact is, and I think this is our challenge in talking to our Jewish friends, these things were done in the name of Jesus. But if you look at the book about Jesus, both the Old and the New Testament, these horrible events are no way drawn actually from the scriptures, even though the scriptures were used wrongly to perpetrate these horrors. An important perspective there from Eva Rodelnik, who's an adjunct faculty member with the Moody Bible Institute. Cliff McManus is pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California. He's also a professor of theology at the Cornerstone College and Seminary and lives with his family in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's written many books, including Israel, Past, Present, and Future. We've got three copies we're going to give away today. How you can get your copy? Well, stick around. First, uh, welcome to The Land and the Book, Cliff. Thank you, John. Privilege to be here. All right, let's start with the basics. What is the origin of Israel biblically? The origin of Israel, real simple, is God the creator of the universe. Okay. Take it from there. Just develop that thought a bit further biblically. Yeah, the reason that's so important is today it is very common if you talk to the average person on the street, many of them, if not a majority of them, might say, if you ask them, when did the nation of Israel begin? And it is not uncommon for the answer to be, well, Israel began as a nation in 1948. Mm-hmm. And nothing could be further from the truth, because that answer tells us, well, they're one of the youngest nations on planet Earth, and when in fact, just the opposite is true. Israel as a people and as a nation is probably the oldest nation on Earth. Take us to a Genesis passage that uh, is the announcement, or something that would suggest, aha, here is the origin of Israel. What would you point to? Yeah, clearly Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Genesis, the first book in the Bible— 50 chapters, but it's easy to divide because the first 11 chapters are about the universal world from the time of Adam to Noah, chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 50 are about the beginnings of the nation of Israel. And it starts with God calling a man named Abraham when he was 75 years old. He was a pagan. He didn't know God. And God, in his grace, called out to Abram, was his name at the time, and made a great promise to him. And that promise was called the Abrahamic Covenant, and the rest of the Bible from Genesis 12 all the way to the book of Revelation fleshes that out and explains how God fulfills his promise to Abraham through the Abrahamic Covenant, Uh, the culmination being that someone great would come from the very loins of Abraham, and that would be the Messiah and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. In your opinion, Cliff, how adequately is this history being taught from our pulpits today? Uh, Adequately, not at all. Very rarely do even pastors preach on the Old Testament anymore, at least that I'm aware of. 
Cliff McManus is pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California, also a professor of theology at the Cornerstone College and Seminary. He's written many books, including What the Bible Says About Israel, Past, Present, and Future. We've got three copies to give away, and if you'll email us with the uh, the promise that you have prayed for the peace of Israel, just like it's a pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as the psalmist says, if you can tell us you honestly did that and include your shipping address, We'll include you in a drawing for one of these three copies, okay? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and include your shipping address and your email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Cliff, you have a chapter titled, God Gave Israel the Promised Land. Now, some bristle at that claim today. How do you answer the skeptic who says, well, God took land that belonged to other nations, so it really shouldn't be Israel's? Yeah, that's what the big controversy is today, is whose land is it? Who has the rights to the land? That's uh, what people argue about and get upset about. I live here in Northern California, and we have some uh, major universities here. And you just go on the university campus like my daughter did here. And that question of Israel and who owns the land over there evokes visceral reactions immediately. Mm-hmm. So it's a very divisive topic, who owns the land. And right now it's the conversation is, is it Israel or the Palestinians? Who does own the land? But the Bible addresses that very clearly. Uh, the entire Old Testament is in the context of the nation of Israel or the Promised Land, or what used to be Canaan before God gave the land to Israel. Uh, so the Bible speaks authoritatively on the land, who owns it, its origin, who are to be the stewards of it, the history of it. I think it just starts with God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He owns everything. Uh, he's made that clear, that he possesses all things in the universe, including the earth and all the lands that they're in. So that's Genesis 1-1. And then with Moses, God told Moses face-to-face in Exodus 19-5, he said, all the earth is mine. And then in Leviticus 25-23, he says, the land is mine. And he was talking about the promised land. The land Mm -hmm. belongs to God. He is the creator, and no one can usurp that right. And then he has authority to delegate it to whom he so chooses, and that's what he's done all throughout history. And beginning with Abraham in about 2100 B.C., He made the sovereign decision to delegate that land to the people of Israel and entrust it to them, and he's never reneged that promise. Cliff McManus is our guest today. He's written Israel, Past, Present, and Future. One of three copies could be yours with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. If you promise that you have prayed for the peace of Jerusalem and you include your shipping address as well, thelandandthebook at moody.edu is how you connect. Cliff, you write, having an accurate understanding of who the Palestinians really are is critical to having a correct view of Israel today. So I ask, who are the Palestinians and what is a correct understanding? Yeah, what we hear today of who a Palestinian is, is it's actually completely wrong historically. And that's the problem. We had a visitor recently come to our church and they said they were Palestinian. I gave them a copy of my book. I have a chapter, Who Are the Palestinians? Uh, This person read my chapter and was thankful and agreed that, wow, I can't argue with what the Bible and history says. But just simply put, today when we say Palestinian, we we usually think of like an Arab Muslim. Maybe their origins are from Egypt, but that's not true. Um, According to the Bible, first of all, the word Palestine is actually never mentioned in the Bible. That surprises a lot of people. Uh, The King James puts the word Palestine one time in their translation, and they shouldn't have, I think in the book of Joel. They translate the word from the Hebrew Palestine when actually it's referring to the Philistines. So historically and biblically, when we hear the word Palestine, really that's what we mean is the Philistines. So 
from the Bible's point of view, who's a Palestinian? A Philistine. So uh, Goliath, that big guy that got killed by David, he was a Philistine, but we could say he technically he was a Palestinian. And uh, most people don't realize that, and they won't agree with that. So that's where mm-hmm. the word comes from. It comes from Philistia, the Philistines, a Hebrew word, and it's been distorted over time, unfortunately. And we have uh, assimilated that into our vocabulary and culture, and now we have an improper understanding of that very word. And that convolutes the whole conversation. What about the charge that we often hear today that Israelis are occupiers, meaning they don't really belong in the land? Yeah, and that makes sense from people's point of view if they don't understand history of the Bible, because God told the Israelites and, and Moses, as they were leaving Egypt, go into the promised land and where the Canaanites are, and you will displace the Canaanites. So people could say even historically Israel were occupiers because they displaced the Canaanites in 1400 B.C., or even God telling Abraham, okay, go to the land that I will show you where the Canaanites are. So when Abraham got there, the Canaanites were already there. But the problem is God made it clear that, well, the Canaanites were the occupiers because that land was God's originally, and the Canaanites were living there, and they were an evil, wicked, immoral, blasphemous people that God wanted to get rid of and be displaced by his godly people, the Israelites. So again, it comes down to who owns the land, and it's God. And he is the one who has the right to say who lives there. And he entrusted Israel as a gift forever to his people, the Israelites. We're talking with Cliff McManus, who's written the book, Israel, Past, Present, and Future. Uh, In your chapter, The Future of Israel, you write, remember that Israel still has a future with God. An increasing number of churches are absorbed into a theology that sort of replaces Israel with the church. How would you defend your claim biblically? I would probably direct Christians to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 in one sitting, because it's a continuous thought. It all goes together, and it's about Mm -hmm. God's love for Israel, his eternal love for Israel. And it's very realistic, and Paul, the Jew, is talking about his beloved people, the Israelites, and Paul knew that as a nation they weren't saved yet, and he had a heart of love for them, and he was praying for them, and uh, he's encouraging those Gentile Christians that you need to have the right attitude towards Israel, and that is that they are still God's people, even though they're disobedient right now collectively. uh, That's only for a time. It's temporary, and it's only partial. Jews can still be saved today. We need to pray for them. Uh, But in light of prophecy and God's eternal plan, and that's uh, how he concludes the section at the end of Romans 11, Paul concludes with a great crescendo, looking to the future, that all of Israel will be saved. That's the destiny and future, literally, of Israel. Mm -hmm. God is going to soften his people, the Jews, and collectively as a nation, they're going to embrace him at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ, the greatest Jew of all. You have given an entire chapter to the subject hating the Jews. Hate, of course, is a universal human sin, as old as the first family. Having said that, Israel seems to be unable to exist without many countries hating them all at once. I mean, nobody could really write a chapter about global hatred toward the Dutch or hating the Canadians, hating the Kenyans, but hating Jews has been an almost constant global obsession. That alone should raise eyebrows, but it doesn't. And that's my question. Why doesn't the rest of the world see the hate toward Israel like we see it? Yeah, the rest of the world collectively can't see it because the majority of the world aren't saved. They aren't Christians. They don't have the Spirit of God living in them, so they don't have spiritual discernment the way that a Christian does, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we also have the grid or the truth and guide of Scripture that informs us at a supernatural level. 
So we can actually see and understand spiritual realities, including things like Satan, that he is a reality, he's a real person, he's a real entity, he exists just as the Bible describes, he is incarnate, full of hatred, and I think it starts there. The hatred of Israel is at a supernatural level, it comes from Satan himself. I'd say that's who hates Israel the most, because Israel is God's elect, Israel is God's uh, apple of his eye, Israel is the beloved people of God. For all time. And so Satan hates everything God loves. And God hates Satan, and he's done everything he can throughout history to manipulate mankind, to attack and undermine and even destroy Israel. Well, if there was just one thing that you could leave with your readers, I mean, you cover a lot of ground in this book, what would that one thing be, Cliff? I would either point, especially believers, get familiar with Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31, and be familiar with the new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah in about 600 B.C., because it talks about his eternal promise to his people, the nation of Israel, through the new covenant that would be fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. And basically, he says he set his eternal love and affection upon his people that will be redeemed someday. Jeremiah 31. Every Christian should know Jeremiah 31 like the back of their hand. Cliff, I want to thank you for your time and Look forward to sharing this book, Israel, Past, Present, and Future, with our listeners. There's a link at our website. But again, we've got three copies to give away. If you'd like to enter to win one, let us know in your email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu that A, you have paused, you have taken a moment today to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the entire Middle East region. And B, be sure to include your shipping address. We'll have a drawing uh, randomly and uh, let you know who the three winners are next week. Thank you so much. Cliff, appreciate your time. Thanks, John. Up next on The Land of the Book, it's questions and answers. I'm looking forward to hanging out with Charlie Dyer for this one here on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. It's time for Segment 3. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. What is Segment 3, Charlie? Uh, Segment 3 is one of my favorites. It's when people write in with their questions, and we try to provide answers. I I try and do that originally by email, and then we, of course, want to share them here on the program. All right. And you can always get your question to us via email. I'll share that address in a moment. First, though, what does God really care about? Obviously, That would be a long list when you think about it. But there's one thing we often forget he cares about, the Jewish people. We see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. And let's start with today's first question, this one from Buck who takes us to Psalm 122, verse 6, where it tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He wants to know, when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what comes to your mind, Charlie? Well, actually, two things come to mind. And first, we know the ultimate peace isn't going to come to Jerusalem or to the world until the Prince of Peace returns. 
So the verse reminds me to voice the final prayer in the Bible, the response of the apostle John to Jesus's promise when he said he'll be coming soon. John prayed, amen, come Lord Jesus. And I think we need to be praying and asking for Jesus to intervene and for his coming. Uh, The second thing that comes to mind is that until that time, we can pray for peace, however temporary, for Jerusalem. In the last two verses, the psalmist tells us two reasons to pray for that psalm. Uh, He says, do this for the sake of my brothers and friends. That is, we should ask for God's peace because of the people living there. Pray that God will protect them physically, but also pray that he'll open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Uh, Jews and Arabs alike need to hear the life-changing message of the Prince of Peace. And then the writer tells us to pray for peace for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. Israel and the Temple Mount play a significant role in the plan of God, and they hold a special place in the heart of God. So pray that God will continue to guard and protect that slice of real estate for his namesake. Kem says, I believe that God's word is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. I don't recall, though, ever having heard the explanation for Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, being included in in our Bibles when there is some question about that passage's authenticity. Now, I rest in the fact that God would have it for us, otherwise it wouldn't have been included, but wondered how you understand it. Yeah, and for someone who may not be familiar with it, those are the final verses in the book of Mark. And I think, Kim, you raised two important issues. First, were these verses actually part of the original gospel of Mark? Uh, They're not included in some early manuscripts, and some other manuscripts that do have the verses also included scribal notations indicating the passage was questioned. The fourth century church fathers, Eusebius and Jerome, said almost all the manuscripts available to them didn't have the passage. However, I had a friend present a paper in a doctoral class I took that demonstrated there is at least some early manuscript evidence for the passage. Now, in light of this, I think the approach taken by modern Bible translations is appropriate. They include the passage because they don't want to leave out anything that might be part of the original text. But at the same time, they do indicate that there's some question about its authenticity. Now, the second question, though, I think you're you're raising is this. What should we do if the verses are indeed genuine? You know, verses 9 to 16 and 19 to 20, for the most part, simply state post-resurrection events that are also found in Matthew and Luke. So I don't see any problem with those. The the major difficulty is verses 17 and 18. And in those verses, apart from the reference to picking up snakes and drinking deadly poison, many of the events described in the passage were part of the experience of the early church pictured in the book of Acts. In fact, if you count the incident of Paul being bitten by a snake in Malta, then even the reference to snakes can be found there. So I wouldn't rely on those two verses to describe what we ought to be doing today. But otherwise, I don't have a problem with the passage, even though there is some question about its authenticity. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and you know, your question is always welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Here's Kirby's. He says, when God orders the death of a large group or a family, like in the story of Ai in the book of Joshua, will the children and those who faithfully follow God go to be with the Lord? Yeah, we're not given a specific answer in that passage or in passages like that. But here's what I see based on other passages of Scripture. First, we know God can take a person's life physically without impacting his or her spiritual destiny. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul told the church to hand over an extremely immoral brother to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But then he adds the individual spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. Uh, Later, Paul described shameful events taking place in that church when they celebrated the Lord's table. And he said, as a result, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is, they died. 
So God can take a person's life physically without impacting their ultimate spiritual destiny. But second, we need to admit only God knows the condition of an individual's heart. Hebrews 11.6 says God rewards those who diligently seek him. And we know that's true of Gentiles, Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. Uh, He was a believer. But at the same time, Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that God revealed his eternal power and divine nature through creation and that those who chose to reject his revelation were without excuse. So when it comes to individuals who perished, whether it's the people of Ai or the family of Achan or the firstborn child of David and Bathsheba, we have to say we don't know, but we can trust God and know that he sees clearly into each person's heart and judges them on the basis of their response to the revelation he provided. And I think we can also assume he extends his mercy to those who are too young or those not mentally capable of responding. But in the end, I've got to leave this in the hands of God. Dixie writes, I'm reading through the book of Hebrews and am puzzled by Hebrews 11, verses 39 through 40 that speak of a promise. What what promise? Can you explain this, please? Yeah, yeah, the promises, they're actually mentioned three times in that chapter. Uh, Verse 13 and verse 39 say the people did not receive the things they were promised, but only saw them from a distance. But then verse 33 says they gained what was promised. So the real question there is, what did they receive or not receive? And what exactly did God promise? And I think the writer's saying there in verses 39 to 40, a brief summary of the entire chapter. Uh, Like verse 13, he's stressing that everything God promised to his followers in the Old Testament still awaits future fulfillment. Uh, This looks at their eternal reward, not simply any rewards they received here on earth. That's why in in verses 10 and and verses 13 and 16, the focus is on the fact they were ultimately looking forward to an eternal reward in the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, we probably call that ultimate salvation or glorification or our heavenly reward. But these Old Testament saints died before ever experiencing all that God promised them. The writer does note then in verse 33 that they did receive temporal blessing here on earth. Now, some conquered kingdoms, others received divine enablement, all gained a promise from God. Uh, that he'd honor their faithfulness. Uh, They gained the promise of reward, but that actual final reward uh, they didn't receive, at least in their lifetime. Janet says, on a previous program, you mentioned The Source by James Mishner. Do you recommend that book for reading about Israel? Thanks, and I love your program. Well, you know, I do recommend Mishner's The Source for good reading about Israel, but with two caveats. Uh, First, the book is historical fiction. Now, it's good historical fiction in that he pays great attention to detail, presents his story in a creative, compelling way, but it's still fiction. The archaeological dig he describes, it's fictitious. Uh, the book's somewhat dated in terms of what's happening in modern Israel. And second, the first part of the book's based on a secular perspective of history. You know, once the book moves to the biblical period and the storyline becomes more accurate, then I really do like the book. Uh, This doesn't discourage me from recommending the book. I just want people to know I don't accept his more evolutionary perspective on the progress of civilization. But with those two caveats in mind, it's definitely worth reading, and it can help someone understand archaeology in a more exciting retelling of the, the event's way. Eric says, I've been using the ESV version of the Bible. Recently, I got a copy of the Bible in the God's Word version. What is your opinion of this version in terms of strengths and weaknesses? Is it a good translation? Yeah, and I have to say, I've not had occasion to use the God's Word translation, so my response here needs to be just a bit tentative. But in looking up their philosophy of translation and at some different passages, I'd say it looks like a decent translation. It's based on the same basic Greek and Hebrew texts as the ESV, the NIV, and the New American Standard Bible. It's not a translation done by a cult or some other group that has a theological axe to grind. 
Uh, The origins of the translation came from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and seminary professor. So it is an evangelical translation. Uh, They try to strike a balance between a more word-for-word translation like the New American Standard and a dynamic equivalence translation like the NIV. Now, I might not use the God's Word translation as my primary Bible, but it could be very helpful to have as you study just to see how they translate a passage and how that compares with your other translations. If you'd like to get your question to Dr. Charlie Dyer, why not send us an email, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We're not done yet. On our next segment, Charlie's back with a devotional. He takes us to a passage in Scripture and a place in Israel. Next. In Psalm 122.6, we read the familiar verse, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Those who love you will prosper. What's behind that verse? Charlie Dyer fills us in in his devotional coming up. Right now, a look at what life is like after you've been to the Holy Land. What's it actually like to travel there and to have your view of the Scriptures better informed and, as Charlie often says, the Scriptures to come alive in in full color? Listen to this testimonial. Hi, my name is Gina. I'm in Brandon, Florida. I just wanted to say that I've been to Israel twice. I just want to say that for anyone who is considering going, who's had a dream all their life to go to Israel, to do it. It is truly an investment in the land, the people, in your spiritual development. You'll never, ever be the same. There is an impartation that happens when you're there, and God's Holy Spirit comes down in a way like you've never felt it before. And when you come back, you're never the same. So I just want to encourage you to go. The book, the Bible comes alive. You see, you smell, you feel. The Word of God is just so real. And then you're just changed when you come home. So I just want to encourage everyone to make that investment because uh, it's an investment you can never, ever put a price tag on. Appreciate that perspective very much. And this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Now it's time for Charlie's devotional. Uh, Many, many people have written to tell us that this is just their absolute favorite part of the program. Maybe you're listening today for the first time. Well, I think you'll see what others are talking about as you hang with us here. Charlie, your devotional is from Psalm 122, a familiar verse in that chapter. Where are we going? A familiar verse and uh, yet uh, set in the midst of a psalm that many people don't understand. Uh, And to understand it, we need to head to Israel. In fact, it's hard to explain the emotional impact Mm. a trip to Israel makes on a person. Mark Twain captured the feeling as well as anyone. He rode into the Holy Land on horseback. The first spot he visited from the life of Jesus was Caesarea Philippi. That experience led America's premier humorist to a moment of profound contemplation. I cannot comprehend yet that I am sitting where a God has stood and looking upon the brook and the mountains which that God looked upon. And I'm surrounded by dusky men and women whose ancestors saw him and even talked with him face to face and carelessly, just as they would have done with any other stranger. I cannot comprehend this. That feeling of of deep spiritual and emotional connection seems to increase as the pilgrim gets closer to Jerusalem, the city that lies at the heart of God's plan for his creation in the past and in the future. In fact, the emotional impact can become so overwhelming that it's even resulted in psychological problems for some pilgrims who can't handle the emotional overload. The phenomenon is known as Jerusalem Syndrome, 
And it causes these individuals to experience intense religious feelings to the point where they believe God is speaking to them or calling them to be prophets or announcing to them that they're to be his messengers to proclaim his soon return. Now, thankfully, I've never had anyone on one of my trips experience Jerusalem syndrome, but the land operator we use in Israel has. It might sound funny, but it's really quite serious because the person could potentially harm himself or herself. Relatively few travelers actually suffer Jerusalem syndrome, but almost everyone who travels there understands the emotional impact of visiting the city and how it could have the potential to overwhelm a visitor. Well, that emotional impact isn't new, nor is it limited to those traveling from outside the country. In fact, King David described the same feelings in Psalm 122 a song he wrote to commemorate those times when Israel gathered in his new capital to worship God. And the psalm David penned was later included in the Songs of Ascents, that group of 15 psalms sung by the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the feasts. David began Psalm 122 expressing the traveler's anticipation and excitement over visiting Jerusalem, the city where God dwelt among his people. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. I can hear the excitement in David's voice. And as he switches from the singular, I was glad, to the plural, let us go up. We are standing. It's as if he extended his arms out to embrace every pilgrim arriving in the city. His words became their words as they all shared in the excitement of the visit. But having described this excitement in the first two verses, David quickly redirects our focus. This isn't about us, it's about God and the place he has chosen. In the next three verses, David shifts our attention toward the city and its significance. Jerusalem's importance didn't come from its physical size, though when David described it as a city that is compact together, He was referring more to its organic unity than to its small size. The word for compact has the idea of being bound together, and it could picture the spiritual unity of the people as much as the tight physical arrangement of its houses and walls. Jerusalem was David's capital city, and yet its true significance was the importance given to the city by God. God had commanded Israel to appear before him three times each year, at the place he will choose. And the city ultimately chosen was Jerusalem. It was the place, David says, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Jerusalem was also the city selected by God to be the capital of the United Kingdom, the city from which his chosen king was to reign. It was the place where, he says, the thrones of the house of David were set up. Jerusalem was the city where God visibly dwelt among his people, and the city where God's anointed ruler led his people. Having explained why the people were so joyously streaming to this city, David ended this song by calling on these visitors to pray for this holy city. In verses 6 and 7, he explained what they're to pray for. And in verses 8 and 9, he explained why those prayers are so important. The two items for which all visitors were asked to pray were peace and safety. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May peace be within your walls. Peace is more than just an absence of war or violence. 
It refers to the health, wholeness, soundness, and prosperity of the city. These pilgrims were to pray that Jerusalem would experience all the blessing and security one would associate with a right relationship to the God dwelling in its midst. David ended his psalm with a practical application. Why should these pilgrims pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, first, David said, it would benefit my brothers and my friends. Peaceful conditions allowed these pilgrims to fulfill their obligation to gather before God, and a spiritually healthful environment within the city also allowed the kings to rule in a righteous way. But second, David said that peace would also benefit God's program here on earth. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. In many ways, David's words at the end of Psalm 122 parallel Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, Paul wrote, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Prayer for peace, for tranquil, quiet lives, is pleasing to God and helps keep his good news from being hindered. Our time in Jerusalem is almost over. Soon we'll be traveling back home. But what lessons should we carry home? I'd like to suggest two. First, if you're not already doing so, consider praying regularly for the peace of Jerusalem, for the sake of the Jewish people, and for the sake of God's program for the future, ask God to work in special ways to pour out his physical and spiritual shalom on that special place. And second, go to God in prayer and ask him if he wants you to visit Jerusalem. It was a transforming experience in David's day, and it can have the same impact on people today. His answer might be no or not right now, but I would challenge you to pray about it because he might just open the door and provide the way for you to go. Don't you love it when scripture encourages us like that? Appreciate Charlie Dyer's devotional very, very much. And speaking of Charlie, uh, he'll like this one. Pam has emailed us. She says, Charlie, I have been so intrigued by the ingenuity and courage of the Israeli people. I have a whole different attitude about the country and the people after listening to the land and the book for several years. Thanks for your program. I especially enjoy hearing your report every week of current events and the Christian perspective that you give to it. Your amazing Israel stories have interested me as well. The devotionals and answers to Bible questions have helped me know God in a deeper way. Praise God for all your work for His glory. Isn't that great? Thank you, Pam. You can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Boy, where does the time go? I want to say thank you for being with us today here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger for Charlie and the team. Join us next week for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.